2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the theater podcast. I'm Alan Seals. And this is a very special episode, which will be the first of three episodes released from my live sessions at BroadwayCon 2022. Joining me for a special little mini Mrs. Doubtfire reunion. This episode is a panel discussion with Rob McClure, Brad Oscar and Annalise Scarpaci. We had some really touching moments and of course, lots of laughs. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, tap those five stars right now. Now leave me a great rating like I'm your favorite Uber driver. And now, everyone, please enjoy this episode with Rob, Brad, and Annalise.
3: Three
2: (laughs) This is such an awkward (laughs) bunch of chairs here. so (laughs) not people, just chairs. No, it's fine. Um so our Panelists, I'll introduce Annalise first. Our, she made her Broadway debut at the age of 13 with A Christmas Story before jumping into Matilda the Musical, and uh, now she had the pleasure of playing the oldest daughter, Lydia Hillard, Annalise Scarpaci. Oh And next, two-time Tony Award nominee with previous credits that include The Producers, Something Rotten, Damn Yankees, Adam's Family, and Spamalot playing Frank Hillard, the brother we all wish we had, Brad Oscar. Yeah! And that's it. There's nobody else here. Uh, Uh, Last but not least, our final guest is a two-time award nominee, Tony Award nominee himself, who is joining us literally out of his put-in for Little Shop of Horrors. He just ran here, wiped off the sweat, came out here. And uh, a few of his previous credits, in case you didn't know, Avenue Q, Chaplin, Something Rotten, Beetlejuice, and, of course, now he was the recent uh, caring and loving Daniel Hillard, a.k.a. Geneva Evegenia, 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 Doubtfire, Rob McClure. <laughs> Thank you. So, this show, I I love the show. I love Mrs. Doubtfire, Dalt- and the th- three of you together have been uh, three of my favorite characters in general, and three favorite actors. Um, so, I, I want to start out though, just very kind of at the beginning of how each of you got attached to this show, because I feel like when First, approaching something that is a story that is as iconic as this is, and then originated from someone as iconic as Robin Williams, and then all uh, every, everybody else that is filling these iconic roles, there's got to be a lot of pressure. There's got to be a lot of work that goes into developing these characters. So, like Brad, we'll start with
3: you. When did you first get attached to to the production? Uh- Well, as Rob will probably tell you, right, five, seven years ago, how how long? My goodness. It was right after Rotten opened. So it was 2015, and Kevin McCullum, our lead producer, uh, had optioned the property then or prior to that. So I was invited into the room right after Rotten opened in the spring of 15 with Rob, Mm -hmm. and we did a reading of a version of Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical, written by three other collaborators. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, that didn't go so well. So then flash forward to, um, for me anyway, literally getting an audition for the soon-to-be out-of-town tryout and Broadway run. They had done a previous uh, workshop, reading, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. that I was not involved with. Uh, I was a little sort of jealous of course because it was, the, it was the something rotten creators I knew of course Rob was involved and, and, uh, and anyway and then wouldn't you know things happen in show business and, and, uh, and, uh, but I went in and auditioned for, for Jerry Zax and uh, yeah and got it in that way yeah Annalise what about you?
0: Um, okay so this is kind of a crazy story but We got time no. I, was, I was new I'm the newest I guess as of like Seattle um, so I, they, did, they had done the reading in 2019, and I you know I could not get seen in that room. They, for whatever reason, I do, you know the business and you know it just I was very upset about it because I love the movie it 's one of my favorites and then I went in for another project um, that had the same casting director, Telsey and Co well, Telsey Office now. And um, they called me in for Lydia Hillard, and I was like, great, that's really cool, because I've been dying to, you know, at least be seen by that show, because I love that role. And I went in once, and the next day they called and said I got the role. And that that was it. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, it was very strange. Um, That has never happened before to me ever it's called
3: nailing it Uh, (laughs) that's how it should happen
0: no I yeah I was very confused Um, I'll never forget my audition I went in for the role and they you know Jerry said I love you and I was like O- okay.
1: I love you too, Jerry
2: Zappi. <laughs> That's
0: the only I mean, problem. I was very thoughts. confused. Sure, because when
3: you want to roll, nothing crosses the line.
0: Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm kidding, I'm okay. kidding. Can we joke and about it? And he was it? like, Jesus. okay, can you go like sit five minutes in the hallway? And I was like, yeah, okay. And I left, and all of a sudden, I heard them hysterical laughing. And I didn't know what I did wrong or That's what they were saying. (laughs) She's terrible. (laughs) She's she's terrible. It was either she's terrible, Uh, she is definitely from Staten Island or... That's true. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, I don't know. The most important thing is like did my accent slip far enough that it's like, oh my God, this is terrible. She cannot be from San Francisco. Um, But... Apparently what happened was is that they all turned to each other and said there. She is
3: Yay
1: Yeah, unanimous yeah. Um, I uh, so uh, Kevin McCollum and I had worked together on Avenue Q for years and then something rotten for years and um, I caught wind of the fact that he had optioned the property for uh, a musical and I told him at the time when I heard I basically just sort of threw out into the universe. Hey, if you if you ever need to hear pages out loud, <laughs> I'll be a reader. I, Truly, a reader. I was like, I'll, I'll. If you want <laughs> to exactly. put it, put the pages on a table and hear it out exactly. loud, I would love to. So they took me up on that for that very first reading. That, like you said, was like seven years ago, and uh, and it 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 didn't work and it went away. And I thought, damn, what a great what a great role to get to take a swing at. And um, and it went away. And then I was doing Beetlejuice, and um. They, asked, they said the, the Something Rotten team has written a draft and we want to do a reading at the West Side Theater. Um, can you do it? I so, said Sure, so I'm doing double duty, I'm doing Beetlejuice and doing this reading of Dalfire during the day. And we did two presentations at the West Side Theater, which strangely enough is now where I'm doing Little Shop, Small World. Um, but I went and in the West Side Theater we did those two presentations and 20 minutes after that reading, Kevin called me and said hey, you need to get out of Beetlejuice because we have an out of town venue, we have the money and we have a Broadway <laughs> theater. And I was like, uh, oh, okay, oh, okay. And I went to be, the, Beatle, the producers of Beetlejuice were so gracious and Alex Timbers was so gracious and was like, it's Mrs. Doubtfire, you, you have to go. Um, <laughs> but strangely enough, what Kevin McCullum did end up telling me is that I'm lucky that the first draft didn't work because that long ago, he didn't believe I was old enough to have a 15 a fifteen year old daughter. Right. But by the time the Something Rotten collaborators had a draft, I. He bought it, so he said, "Had that been ready, then you wouldn't have been the guy." Um, so it's amazing how things take the time they're they're meant to take. Exactly. In, in, in this case, for me, um, but uh, it was a role that I was always sort of passionate about. And yes, of course, it's intimidating, as you as you were saying. Um, but those are the type of things that you you can either be scared from and run away, or scared of and go, "Gosh, how do I make that work? Hmm. How do I how do I do that? How would you make that work?" When you're looking at somebody as iconic as Robin Williams and. Uh, the thing I sort of just set out to do from the beginning was not imitate him, but to try and imitate for the audience the way he made me feel. If I can make the audience feel the way I remember his performance making me feel, that's the thing of his that I wanted to tap into most.
2: That's re- that's a really sweet way of, putting, uh, of thinking about it, because you're not trying to be somebody else you're never gonna be somebody no. else and then you're not being your authentic self or I mean be I think the greatest anyway.
1: adaptations of either material or performances are those I mean I, I was so in love with the stage adaptation of once because it was nothing like the movie but made me feel the exact same way the film did
2: yeah in two completely different
1: mm-hmm. mediums mm-hmm. and that's when I think it works best
2: so Brad going lo- looking at the the role that Harvey Fierstein, uh originated as well mm-hmm. um, the, uh, Rob, what you were saying, like in in this new medium of of uh, theater that or on the Broadway show, that the role that uh, that you have, Brad, was so much bigger and so much more built yeah. out and right. expanded. Yeah. And did yeah. you did you know that this was kind of coming when you stepped into the role, or was there ever sort of any pressure, or anything to be like? Do what Harvey did, or is it always like? No, no. I mean, uh, uh,
3: no. Look, let's let's face it. For the most part, I mean, we are we are hired for who we are. I mean, Harvey is such a unique presence, (laughs) and believe me, when someone did ask me when they heard I was doing this and playing the role, and they said, "Are you going to do the voice?" (laughs) For a second, I had no idea what they were talking about because to me. It's Harvey. I mean, Harvey always has the voice because that's Harvey's voice. So, anyway, and then I was like, "Oh, geez, of course that you know." And I guess I can understand again because he's such a presence. My God, right? So anyway, um, but no, as an actor, that is the. To be honest with you, uh, the the the, bigger child. That's not my my job. Isn't to be hard. My job is to play Frank Hillard as Mm -hmm. you know. The only uh, Rob's job and why Rob succeeded so brilliantly above and beyond his his skill and his talent and who he is as a person is that in the first 20 minutes of the show Rob McClure became Daniel Hillard. A Daniel Hillard that we were just meeting that night. Not Daniel Hillard from the movie in 1994. Mm-hmm. Daniel Hillard who wanted to be with his kids and was trying to do everything he could. So by the time he walks through that door as this iconic character, you know, this the, that, we, that we know with an accent that is very identifiable and helps you hone in on that too. Mm-hmm. It was like when I went into Adam's family playing Uncle Fester. You're filling a shell of something that, that sort of, and it's your job to, you know, so anyway, but Rob had built up so much goodwill, I think, and such, uh, laid that groundwork as this Daniel Hillard, that when that door opened, we knew it was Rob behind the playing, I think, you know, that's, because that's our job, ultimately, and when the material supports you and gets you there, then people shouldn't be thinking about uh, the movie, ideally, they should be, you know, seeing the story they're being told, and, and, uh, so yeah, so I try not to, it's harder, my challenges in that way have been like when you're, under, like when I understudied Nathan and the producers, you know, that was a, that's, that's a different kind of like filling shoes and an iconic and an idea of what people want us or what that is and trying to meet that halfway, mm-hmm. you know, is a very tricky sort of thing. Um, but, um, but, yeah, ultimately, our responsibility as actors is to go out, tell the story, play the role, and try to get all those other demons because they are demons, and yeah. those are the things that will bring you down yeah, is what does this one think? and what do they think do they think I'm good enough do they do they miss harvey I don't right. that's that's everybody's own worst enemy in, in general, like you ha- you
2: have the devil on your shoulder that's telling you you're not good enough, oh, and sure. imposter syndrome in general, and then the, the other side that's like. Wait a second, or if, if you're embracing this, wait a second, I'm here, I deserve to be here along with everybody else. Yep. And so I, I think it speaks to, to everybody here, right? When you're creating an original version of something already, you, everybody already knows, you've gotta just be like, well, screw it. We're gonna be ourselves and like we were just saying the, the best authentic version of who we are yeah. So that everybody else immediately Brad exactly what yeah. you just said that as yeah. soon as we see Daniel Hillard come on stage or Rob come on stage. We're like that's the Daniel Hillard and right. that's who's sticking with us the rest of the time Yeah, it's brilliant.
1: It, yeah, I always say that, I always say that anytime. I'm doing anything. That's an adaptation You have to go back to the ink you have to go past the previous adaptation back to the ink What is the ink and right. how do I put that through the lens that is me now? It happens that this movie was hugely influential for me, and Robin Williams as an artist and a comedian shaped who and what I am as someone who admired him. So when I'm putting this material through my lens, part of him, is part of who I am because of the influences he had on me. So I would be lying if I didn't say that some of that probably channeled through me but not in an effort of imitation but because it was so profoundly influential on the exactly. type of comedian
3: yeah. that That's I am. That's exactly what I'm saying. I learned to play Max Bialystok because right. I saw Nathan doing it eight times a week right. and I saw how it should be done. Right. And so I knew I had that was the outline I needed to fill and right. my responsibility was to bring myself to the party and not worry about people saying, oh he was imitating Nathan or oh he was imitating no. Robin Williams, you we got can't, it. you yes. know. Yeah.
2: So yeah, Annalise, uh, you're supposed to play 15. Your character's 15.
0: Yes, and I, it, clearly I'm not. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> That's not true. It's not you're, clearly. You're not, clear. it's not that
2: clear. It's no. It, you play well along with Avery Sell and Jake Ryan. Jake Ryan Flynn, oh. who actually are kids, but you're in your early 20s. Yes. I don't want you to give away the exact number, <laughs> but. <laughs> You did post, you just graduated from college, so we'll leave yeah. it there. Yeah. Yay, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. COVID graduation. <laughs> yeah. So you are kind of straddling both worlds because you're being the kid. You get yeah. to be the kid, but you are legally and for all intents and purposes an adult and right. now becoming, uh, like, we have a, an interview on my podcast that hasn't come out yet. Shameless plug. Subscribe. Mm-hmm. You'll get a one-on-one with Annalise. <laughs> um, and Brad. I interviewed Brad. You're next, buddy. You got it. <laughs> um, and so, the, what was I saying? I lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, yeah. So you get to you get to sort of split the split the difference because um, you get to be adults with Brad and Rob and Jen Gambatese and yeah. everybody else, but still, like, I guess trickle down. Uh, I guess I have two questions. One is working with these two comedic geniuses. Mm-hmm. What did that What did that do for you? And then how did you sort of pay it forward for the other two actual children?
0: Well, first of all, I was very, very nervous because, one, I was the newbie. Second of all, I had only done—I had done two shows, but I was in the ensemble. Like I was—I was just dancing, and singing. So, and the the weakest. Just thing. you are hilarious. No, but, yeah. but I was just in dancing. two Broadway shows. No, but I've always consi- <laughs> <laughs> no, but like I don't know. I just always—I never considered myself an actor. I was always a singer-dancer. So to get this role where I can actually you know act, and I hadn 't been in a show since I was a senior in high school because I wasn't allowed to and I also wasn't cast in any of my college shows so it was mm. like it was like this thing where I was very frightened to perform on stage mm. um, and it was the, you know Seattle was the first time I had done it since I was seventeen years old, and working with these two is was just beyond anything that I could have ever imagined because I learned so much every single night for even for the days that we weren't even together during the pandemic. I just learned so much mm-hmm. just from observing and from watching. And now I do consider myself an actor as I'm That's approaching into my 20s. And it's been, you know, it, it, copying what Brad said about taking a role that was so like, you know, treasured. I kind of, what was so beautiful that the writers did was they made Lydia sing. Mm. And he says it all the time that the moment at the end of the show where we have our duet, just pretend, it was not in the movie. It was a deleted scene. And that, I feel, is a moment where, you know, they allow Lydia to be that moral compass that you don't see in the movie, but you, you know that she's there, but you don't see her. And for the musical you see her and you see her very well. Yes. And you see her basically guiding her entire family. And for me personally, I'm an only child. I don't have siblings, but my family is immense. And I have a lot of cousins and, you know... They, you know, if you if you happen to be at Mrs. Dowfire one night, you were probably there with half of the members of my family. Yeah.
3: Um, it's amazing we couldn't run. I don't understand why we couldn't. Just on your family alone, no, we should still Ms. be running. The Scarpacci.
0: alone Makes kept sense. the show alive. <laughs> but anyway, I, I have experience taking care of people, and Lydia takes care of everybody.
2: Until you said that, I, I didn't realize it, but you're absolutely right, because... Uh, the two parents are, are completely all over the place yeah. and literally putting on two different faces mm-hmm. to get through things and then the kids are like we don't know what's going on yeah. and so yeah so and Lydia... for
0: yeah and especially being with jake and avery and watching them grow up yeah. i mean it's i mean me obviously i grew up as well but physically Jake just like completely is just a man. Yeah. He's a man. Yeah. And it's it was so nice to watch how Christopher kind of morphed pre-COVID yeah. to post-COVID and then eventually when he came back for the last week and closed out the show unexpectedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with Avery. I mean, even though she was playing young, it was so nice to watch them grow. And for me, um, having that experience as a child actor, I kind of like to put my wisdom onto those two and the four new ones who joined us for a month, but yeah,
2: It was a wild ride. It was. <laughs> it
0: was. We've it's had quite the run. journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. had a journey. Yeah.
2: You definitely had a journey. And uh, You mentioned Jake uh, Jake Ryan Flynn coming in at the end. Actually, Eli Tokash over there from Take a Bow, also on Broadway Podcast Network. Uh, he interviewed Jake, and I was watching that clip that you posted, Eli, of, of Jake telling the story of when he was in the car and got getting the call to come yep. fill in, yep. learning the new script mm-hmm. in the car before going yeah. on that yeah. night. Because yeah. it had changed during the hiatus, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, yeah,
1: you know, he lot. hadn't he hadn't done it in three months, and he got to call at nine o'clock in the morning to do the yeah. matinee that day of a new version yeah. of the show.
0: And he lives in Massachusetts. Yeah, drove yeah. down. I did not crazy. know that.
2: Yes, yeah. Wow. Astonishing. <laughs> yeah. It was an astonishing
1: thing.
0: that
2: amazing. he did. <laughs> It was crazy. That's amazing. Okay. So, That's
3: showbiz. Really. Not I mean, that showbiz. Was really, it was show. crazy. It was great.
0: It was perfect. <laughs> then he oh.
2: came and he got to close the show with it was you, know,
3: great, which is yeah. wonderful. COVID yeah.
1: showbiz, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, okay. exactly. Is, exactly.
2: How much of of the, the Doubtfire cast compared to the other cast that all three of you have been in are, are you taking with you on a personal level? Because I, I've always equated for the last several years now with uh, COVID, experiencing COVID and everything we've gone through as a, a form of trauma. And for everybody who whose livelihood yes. depends on this business that we didn't know would ever, like when it would exist again or mm-hmm. how it would exist again. And we still don't know how it's gonna exist yeah. tomorrow. And so for all of you, you know, you were saying like you had Zoom calls when oh, yeah. the show cut yeah. shut down. Like, I mean, how did you went all stay through, together?
1: We went through everything a family could ever go through in those three years. We literally lost cast members. We lost Doreen Montalvo Man during the mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, she passed away. Um, we uh, we had members of our cast adopt children. Babies were born. Like, we we literally went through in addition to a global pandemic and a show that reopened and closed and opened and closed and opened and closed. (laughs) And um, there's something that the trial by fire, you know, I feel like these relationships are forged in fire in that way, that that these friendships are different than all the other ones because we've been through so much. Um, And I think because the pandemic kept on forcing distance between us, We fought that harder to stay close. Um, So um, there, we were sort of chasing each other in a way uh, that that bonded us in a way that I've never
2: experienced on other shows for sure. Wow, Brad, is this the same? Sort of echo the same thing?
3: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm mean, i still numb in a way. We just closed two, less yeah. than two months ago. and yeah. just, I mean, numb just because, as Rob said, the experience was just unlike any other. We opened and closed, we opened and closed. You yeah. know, we all dealt with the craziest time. I keep on
1: saying by the end of it, I wouldn't have been surprised by locusts.
3: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all the plagues. Exactly. Um, um, so, yeah, it's, um, uh, uh, yes, big picture, of course. This is a family unlike any other as far as moving forward I know that we are all yes bonded in that way and I'm sure that we will yes be gathering in many forms there was one last week you mm-hmm. know uh, so things you know are already happening in that respect but um, yeah but it was a very you know surreal experience in that way because you just you know you just want to get your footing and, and you just uh, you know you know what you're doing you know what's actually happening eight times a week and how the audiences are responding or whatever but it was um, Yeah. It was a tricky. Yeah, it was it was wild. I mean, again,
1: every time we would get our footing, the next variant would hit. You know, and it was like every time we were going like, oh, the last one's cresting, maybe families and consumer confidence in bringing their kids who are vaccinated and or not vaccinated yet. And what are the vaccination rules today?
2: Yeah. Through the papers
1: in terms of age and when you need to be vaccinated. So bringing families to the theater was a a challenge in its own way during the pandemic. And. Uh, every time we s- just started to get talk. our stride and the pandemic was... Th-
3: and you know, you're easy. doing two things at one and it's still happening now, eight times yeah. a week in Broadway yes. theaters. You're doing two things at one. You're doing everything you used to do eight times a week to do a show, which as we know is a lot of work for everyone involved in the building. Yeah. And now you are still juggling this very contagious variant that that for most of the world is, they're fine with it because they'll stay home for a couple of days or they'll... Not, whatever it is, we are still actively testing. Our union says you still have to be out for 10 days if you test positive, and that's, you know, we have things we need to deal with moving forward. But all I'm saying is, is that it's like, it's a stress, it's a, you know, you're testing several times a week at least, if not every day. I know certain companies are testing every day. Mm -hmm. Just trying to keep everybody on stage and the bodies on stage. So we also never performed in a window where we weren't doing all this to jump through mm-hmm. hoops and trying to do the show with the same cast every night, which I remember that one night, the stage manager got on the mic and said, tonight, for the first time, we have the entire original cast, if you will, performing because nobody was out, nobody wow. was sick, nobody, had been a long you time. know, and it's still happening all over, you know, again, this and is we, something we, we have all to deal And we all are used to living
1: with. like saints already, just to be able to sing and do the show that we need to do but now i can't remember i i literally can't remember the last time i ate inside a restaurant with a mask off i I can't remember just because if you test positive yeah
3: you're we're out. Going. And so, yeah, And if you have a gig or especially if you have like, a, you know, you're going to do a gig for two weeks this summer, you know, summer stock or you're, you're doing a reading when hey, it doesn't matter what it is. It, the fact is, yeah. So it's like we're still living in a world of being very, very aware of this, whereas a lot of the world has sort of moved on. And I, 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 I'm not, you know, no judgments there because everybody has to make their own and, you know, God willing, you're vaccinated and you won't get terribly sick and right. whatever. Yeah. But for us, again, business-wise, you know, as far as what we do, it's, um, yeah, it's still very tricky. And, and and, and exhausting
2: so yeah <laughs> well the show deals with uh actually rob you've come from two shows back to back like beetlejuice 2 dealt with some very serious matter in a comedic way and this yeah. as well <laughs> deals with divorce and separation of families and, yeah. uh, in a very in a lighthearted way as well and i remember the, I, I don't remember the exact details. so i i need you to tell the story yeah. obvi about the there was a letter a scene where you're reading a letter and there was an audience, oh, yeah. there was an audience member that Katie. was going through, Katie, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. At the end <laughs> yeah. of the show, uh, it's it's taken from the, the movie. Once Daniel Hillard has gotten his own TV show as Mrs. Doubtfire, um, he starts to read letters um, from viewers, kids going through things. And one of them is a letter from a little girl named Katie whose family's going through divorce. And, and Daniel Hillard on the other side of having gone through this with his family, imparts wisdom to her about, you know, families can look like anything, and you're gonna be okay. Um, and uh, over the course of the runs from Seattle to closing night on Broadway, I got over 200 letters from people all over the world who came to see the show, and one of them was from a girl named Katie, who was actually in her 30s, not a kid, uh, and said, I realized that I hadn't dealt with my parents divorce. Hmm. A long time ago, until you were talking, and she said, "Just so you know, the KD you were talking to last mm-hmm. night was me." And um, those letters go on from there to talk about, you know, um, two months ago, I found out that I, I could I can't have children, and I've been trying to broach the subject of adoption with my husband, and I have there hasn't been the right moment. And right after your show, we discussed it on the car ride home because of the t- subject matter of the show, and now we're adopting a kid. <laughs> um, hundreds of letters of people who talk about, you know. And so, so that's why I, I tend to, I try not to bite back when the Twitterverse comes at, you know, new adaptations of things going, why? Why are you doing that? Why are you changing, why are you making that into a musical? Why, who cares, why, why, what's the reason? I have 200 reasons sitting in, exactly. sitting at home. Um, and, uh, and I don't think it's up to anyone to decide what can be cathartic to someone else. And if it's not cathartic to you, that's fine. But I guarantee you that things are landing for people who are going through things you may not be going through. And our show, it was it was deeply moving to be a part of it and to feel firsthand how it was landing on people. And comedy is so good at that. Comedy is subversive. Oh, exactly. And that's why a show like this you come to laugh, and then through laughter we crack you open, so that in the end we can deliver a message. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just a subversive tool in landing a message. And I think our show and Beetlejuice does that well too.
2: It's hard to do good comedy. Yes, it's very hard. That's why and, you need Jerry Zax Yes, yes. yes you do. It is very hard. And you know, Brad and Rob, like you two, have made some credit after credit, made careers now out of out of doing comedy. Is is I guess where is the is there catharsis in this for for each of you when you're for each different role like even something is kind of uh, i will say n- spam a lot right you take something like
3: spam a lot which is no, just jo- that's where i draw the line
1: <laughs> <laughs> you think i'm joking you think i'm joking
3: um gosh is it cathartic in a
2: in like what 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 is it about doing comedy that makes you feel whole at oh, the end of
3: the day oh oh well i mean cathartic in a way that it's when, look, uh, uh, live theater is an exchange of energy, first of all, with the audience. Any live theater, you know, dance, music, as we know. So the difference between doing Death of a Salesman for three hours and having that exchange of energy and then doing Noises Off for three hours and having that exchange of energy are two very different things uh, as an actor, as a performer, as an audience member, right? So there's no question that loving musical comedy and having had opportunities to be on stage and perform material that you do not have to work to make work the material supports you and it works and you have to go from there I've we've all done plenty of stuff where you have to work to make it come to land make it sound right and you know and you you feel that and it mm-hmm. and, and most times the audience feels it too so you know so to have the joy of great material to sink your teeth into um yeah then there's nothing better than the sound of an audience laughing and roaring and participating in you know that wave of of just that that continues you know and yeah and uh, yeah something rotten was and i think because something rotten was so unexpected people didn't know what it was going to be they had no expectations yeah. who would name a show something rotten to begin <laughs> with so so the delight in audiences sort of discovering that and then it, a, again being like really smart and tight and sharp and God, that show was whipped into shape yeah. by those creators and Casey Nicolau in New York in previews. Basically we did not go out of town. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, when you get to do material like that, yeah, there's to me, yes, there's nothing greater because it's, it's, such a joy, i mean you you really it fills your soul, it's what mm-hmm. it's sharing this extraordinary emotion and high with uh yeah with you know fifteen hundred people, god willing
2: rob do you, do you have anything uh i guess specifically about sort of the uh robin williams you said he influenced so much of who you are or who you were at the time right and and you you hear this a, a lot where some of the happiest people on the outside are some of the not happiest people on the inside case in point robin williams yeah yeah
1: yeah i think um i think that goes you know i don't i don't think that is a general rule in terms of comedians i don't know i you know everyone's going through their own stuff but um you know, I, the thing that Robin Williams had that I, it so inspired me was the unfiltered impulses, right? He, th- there was nothing. He, he was a live wire, right? If he, if he had an instinct, he was going to do it. Just, just yesterday, I was watching bloopers of him on Sesame Street with Elmo. And he, had to do, and he had to do 600 takes because he could not keep himself clean for Sesame Street. He kept on doing jokes and going, well, we're going to have to do that again. But he didn't. He doesn't, he did not have the filter with which to go, don't say that. He could only do it after the fact, right? So, in honoring him, I felt a responsibility to take out my filter, but not to do what he did, but just to let my live wire take the cap off my live wire and let it spark because that's the thing that he did so beautifully is that he just let the neurons and the elect, you know, let all of that fire on all cylinders in a way that was pure. Um, and, And I feel like that's some of the best comedy. And he also, Robin Williams, if you look at his career, he was also, it was all subversive comedies, right? I think about things like Patch Adams my God, you like you watch it to laugh, and by the end, you are a puddle. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Doubtfire, you watch it to laugh, and by the end, you're a puddle. I mean, he was a master at that. Aladdin, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. by the end, him going like, so I'm worse. free. I'm free. You did not know at the beginning of that movie that when Aladdin lets him free, you're going to well up. You know, and that's, that was a credit to him. And I think the way in is how seriously he took those comedies, right? Uh, I worked with a great director, this guy named Aaron Posner who uses a term that I love and I cherish, particularly in comedy, and he calls it actually, actually, right? Abbott and Costello were masters at actually, actually, right? Who's on first is a masterpiece just because Lou Costello actually, actually wants to understand. And the more he's actually, actually frustrated at not understanding, the harder we laugh, (laughs) right? So Daniel Hillard, what would it take to actually, actually put on a fake face in front of my family. And the more you believe that I've gotten to a place of actually, actually, the harder you laugh at the absurdity, right? If if I am re- responding, tr- you know, they say the acting, right? Re- reacting truthfully to imaginary circumstances. But when the circumstances are so ridiculous, the responsibility to behave truthfully under those ridiculous circumstances becomes even it's, more uh, important. Because if we don't buy the people inside the insane pinball machine, then the pinball machine doesn't seem so crazy or so, so believable or you can't enjoy it as much as what if somebody was actually thrown into that? Honeymoon in Vegas, yeah. what would I do if I was in a plane and a bunch of Elvis impersonators told me the only way out of this plane is to jump? What would I actually, <laughs> actually do? And that's where, the, that's where the comedy comes from,
2: the actually, actually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I never thought about it like that. I like the quote, too, uh, reacting truthfully to imaginary circumstances. yeah. I yeah. get that tattooed on my arm yeah. or something.
3: Uh, um, and trust me, nobody was more alive in that room than Rob McClure. Uh, I would venture to say 20% of the text is yours. Let's say it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say it. Let's say it. No, oh. the genius of Rob McClure. Um, uh, well, all I have to say, <laughs> when I sit there and I'm like, I'm not funny. I'm not funny. Enough. I'm not talented, and I'm not funny no, because I wa- you watch Rob McClure in action in rehearsal. I'm not kidding. Rob, oh, whatever. Let me blow smoke for a second. Hi. Uh, with Jerry Zachs at the helm again, a director wow. who's a master of comedy and comedic impulse. Jerry. So, so Jerry was so delighted. Hi, Emma. Jerry was so delighted hmm. by Rob constantly being so alive in the moment and coming up with, I mean, just, it was Rob. I, I talk about it because you talk about Rob Williams being that way. And yes, we all saw Robin in action. We know how crazy and frenetic yes. he was. And, you know, to a point where sometimes you'd be like, geez, Louise, just let me take a <laughs> breath. Okay. But the idea that you can free associate, the idea that you have life experience that you can pull from all of this other stuff, whatever it is, um, and be that present and available is extraordinary and it's why I love being in a room it's why I want to be challenged I want to work with someone like the, because it challenges the hell out of the rest of the actors in a great way yeah. because you know that that ball is going to be caught and thrown back you know that you are playing tennis with one of the best and it's um, yeah and it's a joy to watch and it's inspiring in that way and it's how great material is created because nothing is more of a collaboration than a musical I'm sorry nothing is more of a collaboration there are so many people involved and, and 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 people don't realize especially because we do so many workshops and readings and shit how much actors actually <laughs> contribute because our names aren't in the crea- we're not listed as writers or creators or inspirers we're not we're just you know we're in the show for as long as we're in the show and then we leave mm-hmm. you know and um, so yes it is it's really important for people to know in certain cases that you know my god the creative brilliance that was and if you saw the show believe me it was very apparent i'm sure yes. so yeah
1: that's very sweet, that's very sweet. Thanks. Nice to you <laughs>
3: You were Rob. Just tell the
1: truth,
2: baby. What what's what the literal process of, of this? You're like, all right, here's here's three lines that are on a page, and then you're like, I I'm gonna start with the first word of the first sentence, and then it, what happens next I I don't know until no, it's, it's already like, out of my you, mouth.
1: You can tell you can tell when something is meant to be a bit. And you can tell if the bit is playing or not. And if the bit's not playing you have to change the bit until it plays. And if that means saying something a little bit differently, and see, rehearsal for me is playtime. So, I, re- rehearsal is not about repetition, right? It's not about doing something over and over again to get it right. Rehearsal is the chance where every time we hit a scene, I'm gonna do it completely differently so that I can find somewhere along those 22 times we get to do that scene before an audience sees it, I found gold. Because if it's about repetition, for repetition's sake and getting it in your body, you've never, you've- there's so much untapped goodness. Um, and Alex Brightman is that way, um, where rehearsal is, is a sandbox. And, and he's gonna do something, you know, so uh, to answer your question, like, they eventually asked me to enter the play in Mrs. Doubtfire dressed like a pirate. <laughs> uh, the, family is, the family is setting up a family photo and the, the thing that goes wrong is that Daniel wants the family to dress like pirates for the family photo, and his his wife does not. She wants it to be a Sears family portrait, and Daniel does not. Well, in that first scene, there's a couple of, like, written jokes, and the whole point is that he has fun with the kids, but he sabotages the family dynamic because he's a child. He's a man-child and not a good partner. Um, so looking at all of those ingredients, I— went home, and I came up with as many bad R jokes as I could, and every time we came in, I would throw a different one at the kids. I remember the first time, I
2: the, first, the first
1: rehearsal I did it, I went to little Avery, and I literally just went, L-M-N-O-P, Q, and pointed at her, and little Avery, who has never improvised in her life, but. What? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, we'll get there. So by the end, by the end, they knew that whatever I threw to them the response was gonna be R. So I would never need them to go crazy off a ledge with me. No, whatever I came at them with, the answer was gonna be R. And one time I went, near, far, wherever ye. R. And then I said, directed by Mr. James Cameron, who also made the film about the big blue people, you know, Avot. So I can there was five million of those variations. Um, but that's those, to answer your question, you, you spot moments like that. And any given comedy probably has about 50 of those moments, 25 of which are already landing on the page. But 25 right. that need ironing. So sometimes the writers are ironing out there, and sometimes they invite you to iron with them. But, we, but that's when that
2: collaborative spirit takes over. I don't know how you can do something like this without the collaboration. That's, that's it.
3: Because yeah. it... No, I mean you can. No, I mean ideally you can. Of course, the final collaborator is the audience. So ultimately, the audience is right. going to tell you what's working or not working. And previews. Extent. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, uh, Rob, the looping scene.
2: Oh. Yeah. I remember seeing the show. Every, who's everyone seen oh Rob? Oh. Yeah. Oh my God. That is <laughs> real. That is <laughs> real. <laughs> real. Real. It is real. I remember I messaged you on Instagram. Do you remember this yes, after I, I saw the show? Uh, and, I, and by the way, I don't know if you know me, who I want, but yeah. he, he, I think he responds to everybody who messages him, so. Don't tell them that, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't. Uh, 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 but, I have a three-year-old, so only so many.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, never it. Um <laughs> But no, I, I remember I was like, I had to message you and tell you how much I enjoyed that oh. scene because I could, tell, I could tell it was real. You also I,
1: told me, I, you're one of the few people who were like, I know that that was real. I was watching <laughs> your fingers and I know you were doing that.
2: I know what that equipment is, I know how it works, and you were doing yes. that. Yeah, so what, where did that, I, I just want to talk about the whole scene and then we'll talk about the flamenco scene because holy crap, that yes. was great. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the looping, where, where did that begin? and Did it start? with the idea of where it ended up, or was that another moment where you're like, I'm just gonna play.
1: Well, so the workshop at the West Side Theater while I was doing Beetlejuice, um, they were trying to, you know, when looking at the movie, you have to decide which moments sing, right? What moments are we gonna musicalize? And one of the most iconic moments in the movie is when Robin Williams is left alone at that TV station with the dinosaurs. You remember? I eat wood, it tastes good, that scene. And they said, well, how can we musicalize one person Alone, being sort of prodigiously funny, by themselves in a musical. How how do we do that? How do we show a person sort of being unhinged, solo? And Wayne Kirkpatrick had the idea. Came, Wayne is a Grammy-winning songwriter who was the uh, part of the songwriting team for our show. He uh, had the idea, being exposed to the loop machine and other mediums, that what if there was an artist on, you know, similar to the old school Mr. Rogers episodes, what if there was an artist who was trying to teach Mr. Rogers what a loop machine was, and outdated Mr. Rogers has <laughs> no idea what the hell he's talking about, um, and it goes terribly wrong, but that Daniel Hillard might be left alone with a loop machine, and what chaos could that, could that provide? Well, during the workshop, they had sort of a loose verse written of the first thing about uh, telling time, that that it would be a lesson for children about how to tell time. And what they were going to do for the reading was say, and then Daniel Hillard does something amazing with a loop machine. That's what they were gonna do for the reading. And I was like, wait, wait, does anyone have a loop machine? Can I at least play with it? And Wayne said, at my hotel room I do. Do you wanna come over? And I went over and he taught me the basics on how it worked and then gave it to me to take home. And I had 48 hours before our first Presentation to come up with something. And I came up with the sort of like generic uh, structure of it that I could then improvise within. But then it became crazy because I'm also puppeteering a mouse and a rat puppet that are on both hands that also need to be operating the machine. <laughs> um, so it became this crazy multitask, but once I understood sort of the structure of what the song would be, I could play within it, and then just like anything else, you rehearse it and you find the gold along the way that you want to keep, and you find the moments that you can play within. But it was like playing a video game. like. Dance Dance Revolution, or <laughs> Parappa the Rappa, or, uh, you know, I, I, that's before your time, that's Annalise Scarpacci. Parappa the Rappa was for Sega Genesis, Google yes. it. Um, um, but any of these like musicalized video games where you're pushing buttons on rhythms and trying to make, uh, it in a weird way feels like that. And once you understand the video game, you can play within the video game, but it's it was a privilege that they gave me the freedom to mix it up every night, and things went terribly wrong. But, um, <laughs> but the audience delighted in watching me get out of it, so it it always worked because the audience was in on the fact that that it was really happening.
2: What happened in the workshop when you debuted this? It was pretty amazing. Like
1: the, the, I don't, I think also looping as a thing has sort of become a little bit more popular since that first, but no one in that audience had ever seen one before. Like now if you go on Instagram or TikTok, there are people who like are really amazing and have whole careers around loop machines. When we did this workshop, that was not the case. So people were like, what is this thing? And because it was a tiny room like this, they could see the machine. They could see the buttons light up. They knew that I was really doing it. Um, And and in a weird way, once we got into the theater, we had to chase that feeling again, because so many people coming to see a Broadway show assumed it was tracked. Hmm. So we had to find as many ways as we could to show the audience that it was in real time. And part of the writing of it became How how can we write beats for them to see that this is actually happening interesting because Almost I mean, there are people at Broadway shows who still think we're lip syncing. So, uh, you know, why would you pay to see us mouth? The, 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 anyway. Uh, funny story, I went to see Something Rotten when I was gonna replace Brian Darcy James. I was watching them and I was sitting under the balcony and right under the overhang there were those two TVs. And the woman next to me during intermission turned to her friend and said, what are those two TVs above our head? And the other woman said, it's a teleprompter. In the olden days, they had to memorize it all. Can you imagine?
2: <laughs>
1: For anyone listening. They are not teleprompters. <laughs> they are conductor monitors.
0: <laughs> 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 that would have been really helpful.
2: Yeah, can, can you imagine? Can I'm you my, imagine? Oh, oh, oh my God. Oh, my God. You had to, you had to do it all, all by yourself. Yes, exactly. Oh my God. The flamenco scene is was my other favorite scene. <laughs> and it, it, near the end, you know, it builds and builds, as any good show should. And I want to get into the prosthesis in general, because, A... Side question: Was it like full-on high-end makeup, like plastered face, and then yeah. uh, your understudies and everything? They had to get their own versions, or yes. did you share? Okay. Yes, they did. Okay, so you didn't share faces. No.
1: Okay. Good. Good, you didn't share a face. <laughs> yeah. especially during COVID. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no yeah. face right. or right. teeth right. sharing exactly. during COVID.
2: So the process, and Brad, you were heavily involved with this. Yes, uh, because you're helping. You know, oh yeah, Well helping get in and out and, a couple and, times. Yes, yeah. yes exactly, on stage, dresser, yes. Yes, on, yeah. on stage dresser. Yes. Yes, you became an on stage dresser for amazing exactly. scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the timing. You had to. How many times did you try to rush putting on and off? Doubt fi- The doubt fires. The costume, And then you have to time that to beats. Yeah. And then add choreography. Yeah. And <laughs> just the whole thing, again, knowing, Brad, what you said, the amount of collaboration right, that is right, needed right. to make that happen. Well, each change away.
3: was its own change for Rob, because each change happened in a different place, in a different way. He had, uh, perhaps, this one was 30 seconds, and this one was 37 seconds. Oh, what a delight. Yeah. And the, so, the, so, the, order,
1: the <laughs> order in which pieces were put on <sighs> and take, taken off was always different, depending on what then the on stage business was going to be. So, for example... Yeah. There were sometimes where the bodysuit could be built into the clothes, so you can put that on all, all at once. Hmm. But if I then have to go out in uh, in front of the audience and take off just the clothing and leave the bodysuit on, they can't be attached because for that scene right, you're going to exactly. have to see yeah, the bodysuit. Yeah, yeah. So in that change, what used to be put on the bodysuit and the clothes is now put on the bodysuit, then the skirt, then the thing, then the face, then the this, then your earrings, but for the next change, it's just gonna be bodysuit and clothes, then face. (laughs) So every one of the 31 changes was had a different uh, structure to it. Uh, The longest one was 90 seconds, which is the first time you see Mrs. Doubtfire, and then the shortest one was 18 seconds during that flamenco (laughs) number. Um, But it was uh, full head-to-toe, and I I owe it to what we call Team Effie, Team (laughs) Euphogenaios, four four dressers backstage, uh, three dressers and a hair and makeup person.
2: Do
1: you you ever not make it? Did you miss the cue? Never, like, tragically. But here's the nice thing, though, is that the thing we had over the movie is that the audience knows it's real. In the movie, you know they yelled cut and he went into a trailer for three and a half hours. (laughs) When I have 18 seconds in the show, the audience knows I have 18 seconds in the show. So if I'm coming back on stage just getting my glasses and earring on, they delight in the fact because they know I really just did that. So if I start a line in the wings and then get on,
0: (laughs) they know what I was just doing, you know what I mean?
1: So I I never missed in a way that stopped the play, but there were times where I came in in various states of disrepair, (laughs) uh, depending on how the change had gone.
0: My grandmother fully thought that, because there's one where it's not you.
1: Yes, there's, there's 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 one tricky one, yeah.
0: And my grandmother called me up and was like, Annalise, I was like, yeah, no, and she goes, listen, let me tell you about that change. I couldn't believe it. I said, yeah, a lot of them are great. She goes, no, he came out in like one second. How'd they do that? He's like, man, it's fully another person. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Make that's, Nana sign an NDA now.
2: Well, <laughs> she's from the time when they had to memorize all good. your lines. Get right. Out, right. out of here. Get yeah. out. Get out. Get out. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine? All right, we're going to take some audience <laughs> questions in a second. So think about anything you want to ask any of these two wonderful <laughs> individuals. Real <laughs> quick, I just want to go down the line, are there any moments from the Show that are your favorite, that are standouts that do not have to do with your own character. Oh, god, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, not <laughs> <laughs> oh, have to do with my own character. <laughs> and at least he's
0: Big fat no, my uh, favorite number in the entire show, specifically because what happens backstage. Sorry, but, uh, go ahead. um, but because. Well, first of all, when we first saw that number, because it was new for when we came to Broadway, it was a different number in Seattle. Was it Real Man?
1: Yes. Mm. So it was
0: called a different, it was a different thing, totally different number. Yep. And just watching that in development, because that was really the first new number that we had, for Mm. me specifically watching, you know, it was the coolest thing to watch. And um, also the backstage stuff was, I was just fully in my dressing room, belting along with Charity <laughs> Dawson. And I was Mrs. Dowfire and Charity was Stewart. And we would do it every night. Is there a video of this? I don't think so. Oh man! I know it's very sad, but I will. I'm guilty because I do it to the soundtrack as well, and I do both parts. All right, so
2: the video is not too late. The,
0: no, it's not right, too
2: late. It sounds <laughs> like a TikTok <laughs> waiting to happen. Exactly. Yeah,
0: Listen, yeah. I was gonna make it a try, but then we closed. Uh, so. Brad, uh, <laughs> uh, we can try.
3: Um, oh gosh, you know, I questions like this are always so tricky because there's so many parts of the show that I, that I loved, and so many, you know, I. I uh, I think what we talked about earlier, the scene at the end of the play with the two of them and the song is really, it's just so, be- it's, you know, again, when things are so well constructed and when the story is told in such a lovely way, when the music and the lyric and the dialogue are, all add up, everyone's on the same page. And uh, that was always beautiful. Always, you know, just always touch. Yeah, really. Um, and, you know, and then, like, the Easy Peasy number, which also was its own crazy every night with a, with an ensemble. You know, again, we had such a, it's not, uh, you wouldn't think of the show as an ensemble show, but there were several, you know, it big numbers in the show. And, and this very talented and varied ensemble of people, you know, worked their the asses off, right, and changing clothes everybody. and all that. And so Easy Peasy was was a delight because, so you know, again, you got to see everybody shine. It was a big old musical comedy number watching you know i mean yeah so uh yes that i loved as well yeah i
1: think yeah. mine i i was i i was never off stage but the exactly. the um the one that i think of is uh during the song uh, you've been playing with fire i get knocked down center stage on zero but i get to face up stage on my back oh, watching the rest of the company with charity down front wailing and i always used to say like i wish i could wear like recording glasses so that you all could see my point of view oh. of that number. Because it was like, I wanted to put a GoPro on my forehead because I was like, this is the best seat for anything I've ever seen. Because Charity is just wailing three feet from my face. Um, and uh, and the, the lighting cue in that part moment in particular was gorgeous and all of my dear friends dressed like Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, it's just like the, the mental snapshot I have of
2: that I'll keep for a long time. Oh, that's fun. All right, any questions out here? Yes. So all three of you have been in shows before and will be in more shows to come. Bless you. (laughs) I imagine with like sort of each show you pick up things along the
1: way that you learn and take with you and stick with you. So what is something
2: from Doubtfire that you think will stick with you or something that you learned while being in the show that Mm. will influence your work in the future?
3: That's great. Mm. Well, um, uh, no question for, I mean, as far as working with d- Jerry Zachs, it was my first time working with Jerry as a director. And as far as, you know, Jerry directing comedy, um, I learned an enormous amount about the power of stillness yeah. uh, in comedy. Um, the way, uh, especially stage comedy, um, because of the way the audience's eye and ear uh, needs to, you know, again, the specifics. We had a scene in the show that we, from the beginning, was referred to as the farce scene, which was very stressful because if you call a scene a farce scene, you're, you're hoping it's, you know, going to play in a certain way. Um, but anyway, um, uh, that is, as far as uh, performance and as far as learning something, as an actor, the simplicity of something like that at, you know, at this point in, in the process is uh, is, yes, something I will certainly take with me.
1: Yeah, that, that stillness thing he's talking about, Jerry Zachs used to say, "Don't move when, when a joke lands, don't move." And usually, if you wait long enough, a second wave of laughter will come, <laughs> because you have to give the audience the pleasure of wondering what the two of you might be thinking.
3: <laughs> totally, totally. It just happened. Yeah.
1: Right, it's it's the, it's this amazing thing, and, and when Jerry gives you a note like that, he then backs it up and says, you know where I know that? Because I was playing Muddle on the Fiddler on the Roof Tour with Zero Mostel and Zero told me. Exactly. That's what we're dealing with when you talk yeah. to Jerry, yeah. right? So the power of stillness, the other quote that Jerry gave me that I will keep for the rest of my life and any other show I do from here on out, is you must preserve the possibility of a happy ending. Your character at all times, must be desperately attempting to preserve the possibility of a happy ending for themselves because that's the way humans are. Humans will never sit still in their own tragedy. The second that things are not going the way they need to go, the next thing is, how do I preserve the possibility of this going well for me? And you chase it as long as you possibly can. And then usually when the chips fall, It's that much more impactful because the character has done everything they can and spun every way they can to preserve the possibility of a happy ending. That's something that is really, uh, I will keep with me for a long time. Because the second your character is sort of satisfied in their discontent, the play stops for a moment. You have to continue to chase Mm -hmm. happiness, yeah?
2: Jerry.
0: For me, I mean Jerry, just Jerry in capital letters. Everything that Jerry taught me was just something that I will carry with me for the rest of my life. Um, Specifically, projection, which is so silly, and you know, you always think project, but there are times where, there was like a time where the entire time, every day, louder, 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 and in my head I'd be like, oh my god, Annalise, what is wrong with you? Like, why can't you speak louder? And then eventually I got the hang of it, and the volume that he needed me to be at, and it, just volume specifically changes the way your character is. And I never had any idea. And that's <laughs> what he was trying to really get at. That clarity. He just, you just clarity. needs clarity. Yeah. And, you know, and going to the end of the line, which is, again, something so simple and so silly, but it's something that not a lot of people think of all the time at every second of the time when you're on stage. Um, but also, on a technical thing for me personally in the show this was the first time that I didn't have a guardian Mm. I was doing everything by myself um there was a time I mean it was kind of it was kind of helpful well not that she did anything but Felicia who was the kid's guardian I basically spent my entire show with those kids Mm -hmm. so it was kind of like I did have a guardian in a way um, which came in handy sometimes. One time I did Miss cue because I was thinking about the football game that was happening.
1: <laughs>
0: but, um, but I was okay. I went right on stage. It was great. Um, Perfect. Perfect. But yeah, learning how to navigate a show by yourself without somebody telling you to about making your own track was something that I never had That's to so do. That's so fun.
2: That's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That it's funny that. too because this is the first time you have had a guardian. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. I did.
1: Rob
3: has to have a guardian right now. Rob, Team Effie was he my does. guardian. <laughs> yes, right, exactly. Yeah. But to exactly. tag on what you
1: were saying about Jerry with with yeah. play to the end of the line, also he's a he is hyper specific about punctuation, yeah. which I love. Yeah. Like if your line is um, I've never been there, so I wanted uh, I've never been there. I wanted to check that restaurant out. And you say, I've never been there, so I wanted to check that restaurant out. He would say, is there a question mark at the end of I want to be there, I, I've never been there? No. Then it's I've never been there, period. I've never been there is a question. Don't ask a question until you see a question mark.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's, uh, huh. if, the, if the writer intended the line to be said that way, there'd be a question mark at the end of it. Being true to punctuation, if there's a comma, if there's an ellipses, if there's a dash, what are they, why are they there? Um, and not letting contemporary speech patterns muddy uh, intended punctuation. It's pretty, it's, it's a valuable thing.
2: Something you said about uh, letting, letting the audience wonder what's gonna happen next, yes. fact, when something lands, hold still. I think the best I ever saw that exemplified was uh, Christian Borle in, yes. in in Peter and the Starcatcher, yes. when he slams his hand yeah, exactly. on, the, on the trunk. When the trunk slams on his hand, and that's, you know, like, he that's would milk, I saw that show four or five, six times, I don't remember how many times, and he would milk it longer and longer yes. and longer every single time. Yes. So right. if there's a, blue I just had that, a put-
1: I just had a put- I just had a put- in where I'm watching Christian Borel make a whole bunch of crazy oh, yeah. things happen in <laughs> Little Shop of Horrors, and it's a, it's a wild ride to be on with him, because he yeah. is, um, again, it's another live yeah. wire. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. All right, we've got time for one more question over here. Yes. So you, you talked about stepping into characters like Bialystok and Delphire, but you've also played real people like Chaplin. And was it yeah. your, and you just Fred Rogers? On yes. 80. So yeah. is that more of a challenge or less
0: of a challenge? Playing somebody that we all know well who's a real person.
1: The thing, the weird thing about real people is that you have an accountability to their legacy. Like when I was doing Chaplin, Chaplin's family came to see it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're, you're there... You know you've got his grandchildren going like grandpa didn't walk that way if you don't get it right You know what I mean? Like there's there's a weird accountability to the legacy of that person Fred Rogers My gosh, maybe the most beloved person around and uh, luckily in the case of Julia um, I had Sarah Lancashire playing Julia Child and if any of you have seen Julia on HBO Max the performance that she is giving is so astonishing That any question for me as to, like, how far of an imitation of Fred Rogers should I do, she was the perfect barometer. Because I walked in and saw what she was doing, in terms of Julia Child, and I went, oh, that much. I need to do that much of of an imitation, which is not a full one, but one that feels so rooted and true. and honoring of that of that person, but that's the only d- big difference for me is that you have an extra responsibility to the people who knew and loved them Who may or may not be in the audience at any given moment, so you just you feel that much more pressure to get it, right?
2: That's that's wonderful. That's yeah. absolutely wonderful um, I I've, Brad uh, and Annalise, you've already answered this question. I always uh, usually end my podcast with uh, three questions, one of which uh, I'm going to bring out now. So I don't know if you remember what you've said, but you can say it again. Oh, um, and it'll give you all a little chance to think about it. If yeah. you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can oh, see it as many wow. times as you want, That's what would you easy. say? Right. Brad and I. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, ready?
3: One. one, two, three. Sweeney, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd. <laughs>
0: Great. <laughs> easy. Yep. Annalise? I think I said Billy, right? Yeah, you said Billy Elliot. I yeah. did. Yeah, it's yeah, Billy yeah. Elliot, and yeah. I heard that they're yeah. doing a new production in the West End, and mm-hmm. I think awesome. I'm just gonna make a trip specifically to see it. <laughs> awesome!
2: <laughs> all right, everybody, uh, I'll them giving round of applause. Thank you. All, Thank so you, everybody. So hey, <laughs> Thanks so much. And, uh, and we should we should all get in the center and we will take a little selfie. We're oh posting yeah. on my Instagram. Sure. Take an audience selfie. Oh take God. a deep breath. Make the world a little colorful.